0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early...
1: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicuslive for tickets.
0: Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name.
1: The the great lesson of this, uh, for
2: me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are.
0: Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The First Amendment and You, What Everyone Should Know. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus.
1: Welcome to Amicus, Slate Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent, and welcome to June, or as we court watchers like to think of it, the Nerd Super Bowl. In the next four weeks, the biggest decisions of the 2014 term will rain down upon us. And today on the show, we're going to try to take a look at what's at stake in some of these monster cases. Later on in the show, we're going to consider the wave of abortion cases that might be soon heading toward the Supreme Court, But first we want to take stock of the big cases that are already there. Now, you may remember that on the very first episode of this podcast, we were lucky enough to be joined by veteran Supreme Court watcher and practitioner Tom Goldstein, the publisher of SCOTUS Blog. and he predicted uh, that the court was going to hear this little sleeper case called King versus Purwell, and they did. Uh, so we wanted to have you back, Tom, to do maybe a little I Told You So Dance and to tell us what is going to happen. So, Tom, thank you for coming back to the show.
0: Are you kidding? Thank you so much for having me. The wonderful thing about predictions is that you can make a ton of them, and then when one comes true, you can go, I told you so, and we can just forget about all the ones I got wrong.
1: Well, why don't you start by saying, I told you so. Um, (laughs) We were talking about King uh, the very, very beginning of October. Tell us. uh, Let's start there. Uh, We're waiting for that to come down. It's a big, big deal of a case. Can you just briefly summarize what this Obamacare 2.0 is about?
0: You bet. So a few years ago, everybody who's listening to this podcast, at least, will remember the constitutional challenge to Obamacare, whether Congress had the power to pass that law. This is not a case like that one. Instead, it's a question of whether there's effectively a glitch in the statute that blows the thing up. So the heart and beating soul of the of, of the ACA are these subsidies because the subsidies that are given out to lower income individuals who want to buy health care bring them into the insurance pool and allow the insurers to know that they have a good number of healthy people that they're providing insurance to who probably won't need a ton of care. So everything really turns on the subsidies, but the statute says that you're eligible to, for the subsidies. If you purchase insurance on a health exchange, which is how uh, the purchases are made, established by a state. Now, in the wake of Republican opposition and Tea Party opposition to the ACA, a bunch of those exchanges were established by the federal government rather than a state. But there are provisions in the law that certainly indicate that the federal government plays the role of a state when it comes to the exchanges. So the lower courts split on the question of, does it mean that you literally have to buy health insurance on an exchange established by a state, not one that is run for the state by the federal government? If that's true, then in you know two-thirds-ish of the country, people aren't avail- eligible for the subsidies, and therefore they won't be in the insurance pool, and therefore the whole thing kind of goes to heck.
1: So... The thing that was striking to a lot of us who were present at oral argument in that case was that the chief justice who shocked everybody uh, last time and voted with the liberals to uphold the ACA was almost completely silent, uh, Hmm. which is rare for him. He, He said almost nothing. And so for folks who were hoping for some kind of smoke signals about what he planned to do, we got nothing. Were there other things that happened at oral argument that give you any basis from which to believe this case is going to go one way or another?
0: Oh, we'd love to prognosticate so we can just look at people's facial expressions and we'll come up with something. But... Uh, I do think that the chief justice, both in that case and same-sex marriage, had kind of grown weary of people using questions to predict the outcomes. And so I think he shut down probably on purpose. In terms of whether the government can get a fifth vote, because it almost certainly has four votes from the court's more liberal members, I think they have to be encouraged by what Justice Kennedy said. Because his take on the case at one point was, look, if it's the case that Congress was saying to the states if you don't set up this exchange personally, if you will, then I'm going to take these subsidies away from all of your lower-income citizens, and they won't be able to buy insurance, and the health insurance marketplace won't operate in your state. If you're saying that to the challengers, then I really worry about whether the law would have been constitutional to begin with, because that just seems to really be extortion of the state. So maybe we shouldn't read it that way. Maybe we shouldn't mean Uh, that uh, the federal government was saying to the states, you have to do this or there's going to be a world of hurt for your citizens. And Justice Kennedy is the ideological center of the court and he's certainly a candidate for the government to pick up its fifth vote. And if I were them, I would have been encouraged by that.
1: We're remembering uh, that we had Jonathan Adler on the show uh, right before uh, King was argued and he's one of the architects of this challenge. And he said, if I'm going to lose at least let me lose on this federalism argument, this states' rights argument, because I could live with that. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk while we're prognosticating about the other big, big case that everybody's looking at, and that is obviously the marriage cases, Obergefell. Um, again, really, really enormous amount of weight put on who said what and whose eyebrow went in which direction at oral argument. Um, but do you have a sense after argument of what we're going to see happen in the coming weeks?
0: Again, I think the justices, particularly the chief, to some extent Justice Kennedy, were playing coy at oral argument to avoid just a world of predictions. The going in assumption was that the court was going to recognize a right to same-sex marriage. And I don't think anything in the oral argument changed that going in assumption, which was based on what the court had done in terms of not stopping decisions that had recognized this right from the lower courts and a variety of other T. Levy kind of things. In terms of what happened at the oral argument itself, again, Justice Kennedy here really is the critical vote. He's kind of a hero to the uh, gay rights movement in the United States, really authored some of the seminal opinions recognizing that uh, there's invidious discrimination against homosexuals. Uh, And Justice Kennedy made some comments about uh, the dignitary interest in having equal rights when it comes to getting married. But the biggest thing for me was what didn't happen at the oral argument. And the oral argument was split in two. The first hour was, hey, is there a right to same-sex marriage? The second hour was, or hour and a half. The second hour was, well, if there's not a right to same-sex marriage, if you go to a state that has legislated this right and get married and you go back to your home state, say you go from uh, Connecticut or uh, Maryland and you go back to Texas, does Texas have to recognize your marriage? which is an interesting question if you are not going to recognize same-sex marriage. But there was almost no interest and no energy in the court in that question at all. Everybody seemed to be like, okay, this is over. And I think that Justice Kennedy, if he wasn't going to recognize the right, would have been much, much, much more interested in this question of uh, whether you can take a marriage from one state to another.
1: Tom, do you think it has any impact on the justices, the conversation about, well, people are going to lose things so that in both King, right, we're looking at possibly millions of people uh, losing subsidies that make health care affordable in the marriage cases, just the fact that the train has left the station, there are all these marriages. Does that matter to the justices? Do they look around and say this is done?
0: It does matter it's not going to decide the case but they do they're conservative in many different ways and one is they prefer not to upset the apple cart and you know taking away health insurance from millions of people is something that's going to give them a lot of heartburn Uh, That's particularly true with respect to both same-sex marriage and um, with respect to health care, where it is, in effect, the federal courts that allowed all of these individuals to develop this reliance interest in what the existing law was. They got married. They got health insurance. The only other thing I'll say about same-sex marriage is that it can point a little bit in the other direction, and that is there will be more conservative members of the court who will say, look, the country's changing Over time, this right is being recognized by the states, by legislatures. People are being uh, convinced that this is the right thing to do, and that's how our country ought to work. It ought not be imposed as a constitutional mandate. I don't think in the end that's what will persuade Justice Kennedy, though.
1: There's so many cases I want to ask you about. They're all raining down upon us. But I want to ask you, is there a case, Tom, that nobody's paying attention to that if we were smart, we would be watching for in the coming (laughs) weeks?
0: Uh, To mention the cases for the future just very briefly, the court is taking up a super important question about one person, one vote, which is the rule that says – that districts, voting districts, generally have to be the same size, including particularly federal congressional districts in terms of their population. And the question is, well, what kind of population? Is it everybody who lives there, or is it the voters? Are we looking for an equal number of voters, or are we saying that the representatives need to represent the same number of people, even if they aren't eligible to vote? And that's a case for next term. Then the three cases that they could announce that they're going to decide in the next few days— are about whether you have, to what extent you have a right to a gun in your house, uh, whether affirmative action in higher education is constitutional, and how far a state can go in restricting abortion clinics and where they have to be and what kind of facilities they have to provide. So the justices could be wading into you know three more legs of the stool of hot button social issues.
1: Just when you think it can't get any crazier, <laughs> Tommy, the last question I have before we let you go is simply this: Scotus Blog has become, in addition to you know the must-see site for all things Scotus, uh, the repository of all this great statistical information, you guys keep track of every vote and what's going on. Can you talk just briefly about some of the strange uh, voting uh, alignments and patterns that we've seen this term? It seems to me that it's neither the sort of 9081 terms that we've seen before, nor is it the typical liberals versus conservatives. It seems like there's something going on with the statistics. I know it's early and we've got a lot of cases to come. But can you give us a little glimpse into the data that SCOTUS blog is collecting?
0: Sure. We do have a really interesting term shaping up if the trends continue. Usually around this time of year when we're getting to the last month, what we've got is a huge bunch of 90 and eight one decisions like you mentioned because those are the easy ones and we're waiting for the hard ones which just take longer. This term we have a higher than usual proportion of closely divided cases but weirdly closely divided. The court had kind of fallen into the following pattern and that is If it's a huge ideological fight, we'll fight it out five to four. Uh, But besides that, you know, we're all going to try and get along. And so you have a big gap between the 9-0 and 8-1 decisions and the 5-4 and 6-3 decisions. And those really did have, you know, overwhelmingly an ideological valence. But it seems to me almost like it has to be the case that one of two things is happening. One is the court is getting more comfortable. We're now, you know, many years into the Roberts court. And they are settling in and coming to understand each other better, respect each other better, and being more nuanced in their thinking. And that leads to not just these ordinary ideological five-fours, or there's a conscious effort afoot among the justices to show that they aren't just ideologues. The ideological lines in the Supreme Court for the first time in a super long time uh, fall along party appointment The conservatives are all Republican appointees. The more liberal justices are all Democratic appointees. And I think the court is concerned about how it's perceived out there in the country. And so I bet they love, 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 love that you've got, you know, the chief justice and just and then the liberals, which hasn't happened really since Chief Justice Roberts first term other than the big Obamacare case and other decisions like that in which it's much more, you know, throw the justices into a blender and see who comes out.
1: Tom Goldstein, thank you so much for being on the show. Tom Goldstein is uh, the founder of SCOTUS Blog, uh, a well known appellate advocate at the Supreme Court, and the really godfather of thinking about the court in deep ways online in our time. Tommy Goldstein, thank you for joining us on Amicus. Well,
0: thank you for all those very kind lies. <laughs>
1: Before we move on to our next guest, we wanted to say a few words about today's sponsor, and that sponsor is The Great Courses. Now, you would not be listening to Amicus if you didn't love digging deeply and comprehensively into complicated legal issues, and that is the very motivation behind The Great Courses. The Great Courses includes over 500 courses in all sorts of subjects ranging from law and history to science, available in both audio and video formats. And it's taught by really some of the best professors in the land. The Great Courses series called The First Amendment in You, What Everyone Should Know, is a great fit for anyone who listens to amicus. It explores this question of how the First Amendment, which clocks in at just 45 words, is somehow still the pillar of our democracy. And I have to tell you from listening to it that even I didn't know what I didn't know about the First Amendment. The Great Courses has created a special limited-time offer just for Amicus listeners. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the First Amendment in You, you'll get them at up to 80% off their original price. So, go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Now, as you probably know by now, Amicus is part of the Panoply network of podcasts, and here's a little taste of something coming up on one of our sister podcasts this week. Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hi, Carrie. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Hey, Rachel. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR
2: and Slate, The, the Check- Checkup. Join us next time for an episode we're calling Teenage Zombies: A Glimpse Inside the Minds of Teens from Sleep
1: to Porn. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at itunes.com/panoply. This week, the Supreme Court is trying to decide if they're going to take a major abortion case. And behind that, there are teed up several other abortion cases that look very much like they're going to end up at the court. So we're turning now to Jessica Mason-Piclo. She's the senior legal analyst at the website RH Reality Chat. She thinks and writes all the time about the relationship between reproductive rights and the courts. Jessica, welcome to Amicus.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here.
1: So, so. We've seen a huge uptick of uh, abortion restrictions since, I guess, 2010, when Republicans took over state houses and passed just hundreds, literally, of regulations that would limit access to abortions. It seems like they're now, only now, really making their way very quickly to the courts. And I wonder if you could start by just talking about um, what abortion cases look like. They might get to the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, awfully soon. Right.
2: So um, we have one that the Roberts Court is taking a look at right now, and that's in Mississippi, and it involves um, admitting privileges requirements, and that's the requirement that um, abortion providers in the state must um, have admitting privileges. It, local hospitals in order to uh, perform abortions in the state or face criminal sanctions. Now, there was a big fight last year in Texas about um, a bill that they passed, HB2, and that was one of the requirements. The Fifth Circuit said that, you know, even though this requirement is going to shut down nearly all the clinics in the Rio Grande Valley, you're going to have wide swatches of basically reproductive health care deserts. And the Roberts Court kind of gave that one a pass. Mississippi has an almost identical law, but the difference in Mississippi is that if that law gets enacted, then the state loses its only clinic. And so where the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said Texas could enforce its admitting privilege requirement, the same Court of Appeals, different panel, but same circuit, said Mississippi could not. And so... Um, the state of Mississippi has appealed that decision to the Roberts Court, and we could hear as early as sometime in June um, that that's a case that they could take up. And, you know, if they do, that question would be then, you know, can a state constitutionally um, regulate out-of-existence clinics within its borders is, is one way to look at that.
1: So, so now a reasonable person might say, hey, what's wrong with having admitting privileges, right? I mean, you just want to make sure that if the worst possible outcomes happen, that a doctor can quickly whisk uh, an abortion patient to a local hospital. It sounds, and certainly uh, it was intended to sound, eminently reasonable. Explain why uh, it doesn't always work that way.
2: No, I think that's an excellent question. And this you hit the argument exactly right on the head, which is, you know, this is supposed to promote patient safety, um, but the evidence from the medical profession who is almost entirely uniformly against these provisions is that they are unnecessary, that um, what they do is actually burden patient care because there's a whole political process that often has nothing to do with with patient outcomes in hospitals determining whether to grant privileges for example or not you know another factor to consider in that is um the impact of catholic consolidation on um healthcare and in in some states like michigan they own you know a third to almost half of the hospitals and will just not based on a moral objection grant privileges to providers in that regard so when you peel back the layers on the patient safety onion, it really does start to sink.
1: So can you help us understand and maybe go all the way back to Roe v. Wade, if you would be so good. uh, What is the test for what makes an abortion regulation constitutional? And how has it changed? And how does that shape the way the U.S. Supreme Court is going to look at it?
2: Oh wow. Okay. Yes, I will do my best. Um <laughs> and so that's a huge question. But when we talk about um, you know, the right to an abortion, um and whether or not states can, or to the extent that states can regulate that, the test that the Supreme Court created is this undue burden test. And that is, you know, does uh, the proposed regulation create an undue burden on a woman's right to choose? And lawyers like to make things very complicated. So it's not just is there an undue burden? Like, you know, I mean, you would think just intuitively that closing all of the abortion clinics in the state of Mississippi would create an undue burden but there's actually an analytical process that the court develops and you know one of the factors is does the law have the purpose or effect of um, creating some substantial hurdle to a patient's um, ability to access and, and choose abortion and as you might imagine the courts are all over the place in terms of what that means which is one of the reasons why We will get an abortion case before the Roberts Corps pretty soon.
1: I wonder if you would talk a little bit about other kinds of regulations. We've talked about admitting privileges, but of course, that's only one of many sorts. We've got swirling in the ether. We have 12-week bans and 20-week bans. You mentioned mandatory ultrasounds. What is going on out there that is likely to reach the Supreme Court really soon? And I know that's a lot. Uh, I'm asking you another monster, unfair question. But just if you could give us a little breakdown of what are the kinds of cases that are bubbling up through the system, that would be super helpful.
2: So yes, the Mississippi admitting privileges case the court has before right now and is deciding whether or not it wants to take a look at it. Um, it. There is another petition pending, although the court hasn't conferenced on it yet on North Carolina's mandatory ultrasound law. And those were much more popular, like about 2011 or so. And and um, that one has has circulated back up. Um, I, that's not scheduled for conference, so I'm not too concerned about that one yet. But the Cases that I think people really need to pay attention to are the ones that you mentioned. Um, Arkansas has on its books um, a 12-week ban. North Dakota has a six-week ban. Um, Nationally, we're debating a 20-week ban. These are all pre-viability abortion bans, even though the lawmakers may not call them pre-viability abortion bans. They may call them fetal pain bans or heartbeat bans, um, but they all have something in common, and that is that they seek to ban abortions prior to fetal viability, which the Supreme Court has said states can't do. Um, two important cases, the case challenging the Arkansas 12-week ban and the case challenging the North Dakota six-week ban, um, those are currently alive in the 8th circuit court of appeals which is a pretty conservative federal appeals court i mean i i kind of joke that they were the 5th circuit before the 5th circuit was the 5th circuit on abortion rights um in terms of their willingness to to you know sort of uphold anything um The North Dakota case and the Arkansas case were heard together, even though they're different bills and laws, because they impact many of the same issues. Just recently, the Eighth Circuit issued an opinion that upheld the block on the Arkansas law, but basically said viability is in play, that um, if the state of Arkansas had given um, the Eighth Circuit and the trial court more evidence, then it could find that the state can decide when viability begins and restrict abortion according to that. That's important because in the North Dakota case, attorneys for North Dakota argued that as far as they're concerned, viability begins at conception, so states can, if they so want, ban abortion at the point of conception, and there's very little that the courts can do with it. The Eighth Circuit has not ruled on that North Dakota case, and that is giving me quite a bit of pause.
1: Talk a little bit Jessica, about the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court just hasn't taken an abortion case in a long time. This is – you know, it's striking that we're talking about same-sex marriage – And in the amount of time that the court has heard several marriage equality cases uh, and really, I think, uh, moved the ball dramatically doctrinally, uh, we've had radio silence on uh, reproductive rights cases. And I suppose that's bracketing Hobby Lobby, which is uh, a reproductive rights case that the court has taken. But why does the court not want to wade back into this? You know, I think that that is a great
2: question, Um, and I would ask Justice Anthony Kennedy in particular on that. I mean, I think that one of the things that is really interesting about the Mississippi case and could prove to, you know, just be too much for the court to resist is there's a dissent um, by Justice Garza in the Fifth Circuit that talks about the rights of you know privacy and freedom of movement and the fact that you know our constitutional rights are not defined alone by the state that we live in and that is a really dangerous way in my opinion of sort of flipping ideas of federalism when it comes to um... sort of fundamental rights but You know, there have been a lot of really big political decisions before the court, and maybe some of the answer is because, you know, the chief justice is looking to pick only a few really high-profile, high-political cases at a time um, for the court to weigh in on, but I don't think they're going to be able to avoid it for much longer.
1: I think that's right. And I think it's certainly the case that some of these restrictions are passed deliberately flouting, you know, the undue burden test, deliberately flouting doctrine in order to force it back to the court under the theory that if they would just overturn Roe, uh, we could all sleep better at night. And so it does seem that there's an aggressiveness in the lower courts and an aggressiveness in the legislatures that is matched amazingly by, nah, at the U.S. Supreme Court.
2: It's really interesting, you know, and that aggressiveness was on full display in the Eighth Circuit um, oral arguments, where you had the one of the attorneys for the state of Arkansas make the argument that the, you know, facts and circumstances underpinning Roe simply no longer exist because the majority of states now have safe haven laws that allow women to turn over their infants to the states should they not be able to care for them, um, and then you followed that up with the attorney from North Dakota arguing that the purpose of North Dakota's six-week ban was absolutely to bring a direct challenge to Roe. They submitted affidavits from anti-choice medical experts that says in their opinion because you know IVF zygotes can live outside of a womb in a petri dish for three days that supports a legislative finding that conception and viability are the same thing for purposes of restricting abortion. And Uh, You know, if the Roberts court continues to stay out of the fight, we'll have a patchwork mess of laws. But then I hope, you know, maybe the silver lining to that would be that some of these legislators and litigators get the message that there is a limit, even with the conservatives on the court who have made it very clear that they're not a fan of abortion rights.
1: Jessica Mason-Piclo is the senior legal analyst at RH Reality Check and a really indispensable analyst of these reproductive rights cases. Jessica, it's just a pleasure to have you on Amicus today.
2: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I hope I was helpful. And please come join us over at our podcast on RH Reality Check soon.
1: (laughs) You got it. And that's it for today's episode of Amicus. As always, we love to hear your thoughts. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. And thank you for your letters. We also so appreciate your help in spreading the word about the podcast. And a good way to do that is leave a review on our iTunes page. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store and click the Ratings and Reviews tab. And before we leave you today, we have one more exciting announcement about a new project here at Slate that you might be interested in checking out. It's a nine-part podcast on the history of slavery. And in it, Slate writers Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion are joined by leading scholars of slavery. Every episode focuses on the life of a different enslaved person. This is our first Slate Academy, and it's available exclusively to members of Slate+. Plus. Visit slate.com academy to learn more. A big thank you goes out to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for another exciting edition of Amicus.